Airplanes, Ubers, cocktail parties, and social events are always really interesting when you're a pastor, especially when people don't know you're a pastor. And so it's always kind of fun for me. Fun's a loose word, but it's always interesting for me. Let me use the word interesting. It's always interesting for me when I am in conversation with somebody that doesn't know what I do for a living, and then I say, what do you do for a living? And then I tell them what I do for a living, and then I get to watch their facial expressions kind of respond and react based on their understanding or their experience with people who are pastors or who have been pastors. It's always kind of amusing. Uh, And you can always kind of lump people into two categories. One category is like, oh yeah, I go to church and I'm so, that's awesome. Like, go, same team, high five, you know, that kind of thing. And then there are people who either they used to go to church or they've never really gone to church or they kind of have some Um, resistance to the church because of their experience or their observations or what they've seen said about people who go to church. And so uh, either we jump into deep conversation. Okay, so I've been meaning to ask a pastor and we just go straight into like the deep end and they share stuff that they would never share with anybody but their therapist. And so then, you know, we have this really strange but, you know, incredibly intimate conversation on an airplane or that's the end of the conversation. I'm like, I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, okay. And, and then they just quiet. They, they find a book or they, you know, read the stuff in the seat back in front of them or they turn the volume up if they're in the Uber. It doesn't matter where we are. But it's always kind of one of these two kind of extremes as I uh, get to tell people that I'm a pastor. And if I'm being honest, like the hesitation, the the questioning, the wrestling, the uncertainty that people have with people who are a pastor, who kind of are a part of the Christian faith, like, it makes sense. I get it. Like, I see the same headlines that they see. I see the same, like, sin and moral failures that happen by religious leaders, whether it's in this country or other countries. I see the harm, the human rights violations that have happened for decades and millennia in the name of religion, I see all of that. And the problem is, like when you say that you're a pastor, you get lumped in with the whole breadth of the Christian experience. You get connected to everything good and bad that has been done in the name of Christianity. And maybe for you, you've had similar experiences. Maybe you try to keep your association with church to yourself in certain situations, maybe at work or in certain friend groups, because you know that that same association applies, that they're going to connect you to everything. We're going to get this in a second, I promise. They connect you to everything that has ever been done in the name of Christianity. And it's hard because there is, when we're being honest, in the kind of the broader scope of Christianity, a ton of hypocrisy. There's a ton of, we say one thing and we do another. And there's so much of it that it's oftentimes the stumbling block for people as it relates to faith. Maybe you, you come and you do it because you're strongly encouraged or told to come to church. And maybe you pop in occasionally Christmas, Easter, and that's kind of your regular rhythm as it comes to church. But for, for most of your hesitation with church, it's because you just don't see a whole lot of consistency in what Christians say and what Christians do. And so for you, you're like, I don't really know if this thing's real. It sounds good, but it sounds a little too good to be true because that what I see and what I experience aren't always the same thing. In December of this past year, uh, an organization called Barna did a, a kind of a survey 
of people who um, weren't religious. And they asked them this question. The question was, what causes people with no faith to doubt Christianity? So they were asking people who profess not to have an active working faith or a-religious, they don't participate in church of any kind. They asked them the question, what causes people with no faith to doubt Christianity? And there were four or five or six kind of dominant answers, uh, answers like the violence we see in the world, um, no one religion has a monopoly on truth, uh, science, uh, human suffering, all of these were kind of some of the major answers given. But the number one answer, far and away, the number one reason that people with no faith doubt Christianity is this. The hypocrisy of religious people. That was what they said. So it's not just my anecdotal experience riding on planes and Ubers. Maybe it's not just your lived experience, but it's the number one response by like two standard deviations. For those of you who know what that means. I had to look it up to make sure I was using it correctly. <laughs> just so for the rest of you who are like, I don't know what that means. I didn't either until about you know, an hour and a half ago. But that's what they said. This was their answer. The hypocrisy of religious people. The way that... Christians claim one thing and then do something totally different. The way that we say, oh, we're going to try to love people well and we're going to be kind and we're going to be good. And then when it doesn't suit us, we don't do those things. We do whatever works best for us and we operate in our own self-interest. And so the gap between what we profess and what we live is the reason, the number one reason that people who don't practice religion, are hesitant to do so. In fact, uh, more than a decade ago, this Catholic father, Brendan Manning, said this. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. And if you were at our men's breakfast beginning of this month, we talked about this as well. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him with their lifestyle. And he goes on to end it this way. He says, this is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And I totally agree. It is the hardest part to reconcile the difference between what we say and what we do. And in fact, so much of what gets named as Christianity often feels anything but. Christianity is a blanket term that we see used, particularly in the media, and now as it relates to politics, and then you examine the actions and the evidence done in the hands of that same label, Christian, and I find a hard time reconciling it with what Scripture teaches. What do we do with that? What are we as people who are aspiring to be Christian, who are aspiring to live this Christian life, what are we supposed to do with this huge chasm between the way that we're called to live and the way that we actually live? Now, you're joining us in week two of a sermon series called Roots, and the goal and the, offer, you know, the object of the exercise for the, kind of the next six or seven weeks is for us to kind of examine the core tenets of Methodism. 
Uh, we're going to interchange the word Methodism and Wesleyism, Wesleyanism, because Methodism was started by John Wesley. And so these words we're going to use interchangeably just so you can track with us the whole time as I jump back and forth between terminology. But really, we're trying to rediscover what is the essence of our particular category of faith. You can kind of line up Christianity across a whole spectrum of belief, and we fall somewhere on that spectrum. And so understanding where we fall and why we fall where we fall is important. Because I believe that at its core, at its essence, there is a vibrancy and a vitality and a power to what we as Methodists profess to believe. The tenets that we were handed down by John Wesley that make us unique and distinct from other forms and expressions of Christianity. And I think if we can rediscover that and recapture it, we can avoid this whole hypocritical you know, mode of operating in the world. That when people look at us, we're not the reasons that they object to being Christian. I shared this last week. This is what John Wesley said towards the end of his life about Methodism. This was not a, again, Methodism was not an attempt to start a new religion, to start a denomination. John Wesley was an Anglican priest who kind of evaluated the current state of the Church of England and said, we are just going through the motions. We have lost all of our efficacy and our power and our vitality. He would have used the term hypocritical to describe what he was experiencing by the leaders of the Church of England. They were going through the motions. They had all the dress and all the fancy rituals and all the things, but they weren't caring for the poor. They weren't ministering to the needy. They weren't extending and welcoming those who look different than themselves. He says, listen, we are, we've missed the point. We've lost the plot. And so as he tried to, to renew and redirect the Church of England back towards the tenets and the centrality of its faith, it ended up just breaking away and becoming its own thing because of the inability to hold those two pieces together. And so for the last couple hundred years, the Methodist movement has been trying to hold to its center. And I fear that if we don't remind ourselves of what that center is, we won't be able to hold to it either. And so this is what John Wesley said about Methodism. He said, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America. But I am afraid, lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And I think in that last phrase, the form of religion without power, is what John Wesley saw in the Church of England. And it is what those people who aren't religious see in the hypocrisy of the Christian church. It's the form of religion, but no power, no honesty, no integrity. He goes on to say this. He says, I don't want this to happen. But it's probably going to happen unless, and this undoubtedly will be the case, unless the people called Methodists hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. This is the goal of the whole series. What is the doctrine, spirit, and discipline to which they first set out that we have to hold fast to? Otherwise, we end up just like everybody else, with the form of religion without the power. And so today we are going to deep dive into the central doctrinal belief statement of the Methodist movement. 
This is, if you had to boil Methodism in its distinctiveness and what it believes and what it tries to practice, at least originally, down to its very essence, it would be this. It's the doctrine of entire sanctification or Christian perfection. And if some of you are like, uh-oh, this sounds like seminary. Uh, that, that does sound just like seminary. My hope will be that this will be far more engaging and entertaining than my seminary experience was uh, for you all this morning. Some big words, but we're going to unpack them together. The doctrine, kind of the belief around, the understanding, the idea of entire sanctification or Christian perfection. Those two phrases can be used interchangeably. Now, where does this idea come from? John Wesley would say that it comes from Scripture. And he would cite a passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is teaching on what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Now, a reminder, the kingdom of God is not this future place or it's not limited to this future place, but it is the ever-present reality of God's reign and rule here in this world. And the people who live in alignment with and in obedience to God's reign and rule live in a certain way. And living in that certain way has an effect on their hearts and on their lives, on their thoughts, their words, their actions, their values, their priorities. It, it starts to kind of put the human heart and life under construction. This is what Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about the shift and the transformation that happens in the human heart when you be, begin to live according to the kingdom of God. And then at the very end of his teaching on this transformation of the heart, he ends with these words. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This idea, children of your Father in heaven, is just another way to say those of you who want to live in the kingdom of God, who want to participate in what God is doing in the world, who want to align themselves with God's way. If you want to do that, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And he goes on to say, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, in place of tax collector, you can use any category of people who are those people for you. Liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, whatever you want to put in that place, those people that you'd like, we would never be like them. Or if I got stuck next to them on an airplane, that would be the worst thing ever. Names are coming up, faces are coming up, categories of people are coming up. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even the people that you despise most do that. He says, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Now, this idea of greet was connected to this first century understanding of hospitality as kind of one of the operative principal values in that uh, part of the world during that time period. It still exists today during that, that part of the world. But this idea that you were supposed to welcome, open your home to people. And it says, and if you greet only your own people, because again, the first century command, especially in scripture, was that you were supposed to be willing to host even for, you know, strangers, people who came from faraway places and lands into your home. 
without hesitation or resistance. And so what Jesus is reminding them of is, one, that command, but two, like even pagans, they open their homes to their own people. These are people who don't believe, people who don't profess the faith that we profess. And he says, even they do that. And he says this at the end. Maybe you have heard this before. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, for some of you, maybe this was weaponized against you as you were a kid growing up in church. It was used to criticize, to condemn, to point out all the flaws and failures of the way that you were living. For many of us, this feels like either an oppressive command or a daunting challenge that we're not able to live into or just this kind of overly idealistic kind of end goal that is actually not attainable in this life. And so for most of us, we just kind of dismiss this command of Jesus because we get hung up on the word perfect. Be perfect. Our understanding of the word perfect means without mistake, flawless, without blemish, uncorrupted in any way. That's what we think being perfect means. But the way that Jesus uses it and the way that it was understood in that first century was a sense of um, wholeness, a sense of fullness, a sense of completion or maturation. And so when Jesus is saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, what he's saying is there's a goal to try to come to kind of completeness in your ability to follow God. Fullness in the way that you live, fullness in the way that you act, uh, you are at kind of complete maturation in the Christian life. It doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes. That's not what the goal is. But the goal is that you have a fully realized kind of desire and ability to follow God. Now, if you're still like, I'm not quite sure, I still am tracking with what you're saying. John Wesley defines this for us. And he says, but what is perfection? The word has various senses. Here it means perfect love. And if you read the context of what Jesus is saying, he's talking about loving your enemies or loving your neighbors. And so this is really the broader context in which we're seeing this word perfection. Really what it means is like you love as you're intended to love. You have a kind of full, mature, responsible way of loving in the world. Perfect love. It is love excluding sin. And that's tricky, right? It's love excluding sin. Because so oftentimes sin gets mixed in with the way that we try to love. And the way that John Wesley would define sin in this instance would be a knowing transgression of the laws of God. A knowing transgression. So there has to be kind of intent for John Wesley as it relates to this. But he says it's love that doesn't ever transgress the law of God. We see this kind of when Jesus is asked, okay, Jesus, sum up all of Scripture for us. And he says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This is what's meant by perfection, being able to love in that complete way. John Wesley goes on and he says, love, filling the heart, taking up the whole capacity of the soul. It is love. And then he quotes, rejoicing evermore, praying without ceasing in everything, giving thanks. 
Now, the way that John Wesley likes to kind of unpack this idea of Christian perfection, of entire sanctification, of really the ability for us to love in this complete and perfect manner is this passage out of Galatians. And he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You could argue that the whole Christian project is aimed around how do we become people who love perfectly? Not love without mistake, but love God with our heart, mind, soul, strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. If we can get to that place, then we are living as children of God. Now, here's what makes Methodism distinct. The object of that, Methodists actually believe is possible. It's not just this far out goal that, oh, that would be awesome if we could do that. No, because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our life, God can actually transform our hearts so that we can love perfectly, that we can love excluding sin, that in all of your interactions with your spouse, they're loving, that in all of your interactions with your children or with your parents, they're kind and gracious and considerate, that the way that you interact with the people around you, whether you know them or not, that they're generous and gracious and open-handed. That's what makes Methodism distinct is the belief that this is actually possible and that through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our life, we can actually move towards it. It is not a destination, but it is a transformation and a journey that happens in the human heart that is constantly under construction, being made more and more and more perfect in this life. And this is really hard. Yesterday, uh, my wife and I dropped our 14-year-old off to go visit some friends in another state. And so you know, she has to travel as an unaccompanied minor. And so we get to kind of walk her back to the gate. And we're standing in the security line because we're normally pre-checked, but we didn't have pre-checked because we just have the gate pass. And so she goes through pre-check, and we're standing in you know, general population security checkpoint. You know, it's like 40 people deep. And... I can just feel it. Just, I don't know if you know this experience, but just the irritation and annoyance with the inefficiencies in which people go through the security process. And so I'm watching. I'm, I mean, we've got the pass and the ID, and like, we just need to walk through, please. And, you know, people are pulling out bottles of water, and they're like, can I put this here? And you're like, oh, my God, when, when is the last time that you've traveled? You can't, you can't bring water onto a plane. And they're like, what about food? And they've got, like, a foot-long sandwich, and we're like, oh, my God. And, and so you just watch as everybody finds a new way to just delay the process. And what you should know about me is efficiency is one of my probably top three love languages. And so this is like nails on a chalkboard for me. I'm just watching as people are making their way through security and, you know, one person's got one shoe on and one shoe off and they got to go back through the gate. You're like, I just, I just feel all the annoyance and the judgment and the resentment and the frustration building up inside of me. So I look to my wife and I say, what does this say about me that, like, I'm a pastor and this is how I feel about all these people? <laughs> she, she thinks about it for a second. She smiles and she looks up. She says, nothing good. <laughs> um, so there's that. Uh, Ian, I think I messed up my slides. If you'll help me get back to um, the end of 
where I was right before the questions. So, yeah, so I go through the airport security. We finally make it through. And that was my experience because this is really hard to love well. Clearly, I have not achieved entire sanctification or Christian perfection. I am on my way, just like the rest of you. Because it's hard to love people who do things that annoy us and frustrate us or don't do things the way that we would want them to do things or seem to be working in direct opposition to our wishes or our needs or our expressed desires. But this is where the rubber meets the road for us. This is where the essence of our Christian identity comes into play. Because if you go back to the objections that, that people have to Christianity and the hypocrisy that they see, whatever the specificity of hypocrisy that they see in the Christian life and faith, wouldn't it all be a resolved if Christians just loved well? Every single bit of it. All of the moral failures, all of the oppression and abuse, all of the violence and death for the last 2,000 years done in the name of God and religion. If Christians just did this one thing, love God and love others well, if we just got that right, all of that objection all of the gap between what we say and what we do would disappear. And this is why for Wesley, this is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To live in such a way that your heart is continually under construction, being transformed so that you can love more perfectly. Both God and neighbor. And so for Wesley, not only was this essential to what it meant to live the Christian life, but he needed to make sure that there were some mechanisms that allowed and facilitated this process to happen in people's lives. It's not just enough to teach people about this, to name it, to say, ah, go give it your best shot. He wanted to build some type of infrastructure that would help ensure that people would move towards greater holiness and sanctification and maturity in the way that they loved each other. And so he created these things kind of, we would call them groups. He used the word band. But what they were is they were groups of three to five people of the same gender and of the same season and stage of life. So married with kids in the home would meet, those men would meet, those women would meet, single women, single men, they would meet, you know, adults with children out of the home, they would meet. Three to five people, they would meet weekly. Attendance was mandatory and it was viewed as like the essence of the Methodist movement, these Methodist bands, these groups. And they would ask themselves questions that would hold each other accountable. And there was a whole list of questions that they would go through during the course of their time together. But every week they would always ask these four questions. Every week, always ask these four. And then they would add on additional questions. And so in the remaining time, I just want to look at these four questions and pose kind of the thought experiment of what would it look like if we asked ourselves these questions? What if we asked each other these questions? Here's the first one. What known sins have you committed since our last meeting? Now, imagine the accountability both to others and to yourself. If you answered honestly every single week that you gathered. 
Could you imagine the way that you'd hold yourself to a higher standard, knowing that on Thursday night at 7 p.m. you had to show up and say, well, this week I judged 75 people at DFW Airport (laughs) and then 30 more on the drive home. If you had to give an honest account of the way that you failed to love well, the ways that you knowingly violated God's laws? What known sins have you committed since our last meeting? Question number two, what temptations have you met with? Maybe not ways that you've given in to sin, but ways that you've experienced the temptation or the desire to want to. What are the ways that you've been tempted? For most of us, it probably starts with a phone in some way, shape, or form. What would it look like to begin to name those things? To name those places that we continually put ourselves into, the patterns that we continually engage in, knowing that they lead us astray, but we'd have to name them out loud to people as they look into our eyeballs. Question three, how were you delivered? In those instances where you did not give in to temptation, what stopped you? What was the way that God was at work in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit? What kept you on course? And then lastly, what have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it be sin or not? This is one of those like, I'm not sure if this is wrong or not, so let me check this out. This is kind of the version of the question I asked my wife at the airport. What does it say about me? Not good. What have you thought, said, or done? which you doubt whether it be sin or not. Every week you had to give a full account of those answers. And every week you heard others share theirs. And then you encouraged each other. You kind of prodded and spurred one another on. You held each other accountable. You reminded each other of the work that God was trying to do in your life. As painful as this would be to start for us, as invasive as this would feel, I guarantee it would transform our lives. If you had to give an account of these things every single week. Now in the fall, we're going to try this with some of the men at the men's breakfast. There will be ways that we open this up to women too. It's not just a male thing. But in the meantime... What would it look like if this was your daily prayer process, this, your daily kind of appointment with God to check in about these things? Maybe you write it down in a journal. Maybe you share this with your spouse or a close friend. Maybe you just say it to yourself. But what would it look like to begin to name this stuff? Because here's what I know would happen. We would grow in maturation we would grow in holiness of heart and life. We would grow in Christian perfection and we would be made more and more sanctified because it holds us accountable to love well, to really own what it is that we say that we profess, not just to kind of show up for an hour on Sunday morning and then check the box off and never have to live in any relationship to what we experience here at church get to do what we want, say what we want, when we want, how we want. 
we held ourselves accountable to a higher standard, not only would it change form our lives, but think about all the lives of the people who we don't realize are paying attention to our lives. All of the people who are watching how us Christians live, who have objections because of the hypocrisy that they see, because of the gap between what we say and what we do. Now, I'm not responsible for all of Christianity, thank God. I'm not even responsible for Christianity in Dallas or even in this neighborhood. But I do get to talk to you. And so what would this look like if we begin to live this differently? What difference could we make? What difference could you make in your homes? What difference could you make in your friendships and in your places of employment if we begin to live a more perfect kind of love? That's what we're called to. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And ultimately, I think that's enough. So let me pray for our time that God would begin to make it so in our lives. Will you join me? Heavenly Father, help us to understand the true essence of perfection. Not to go around afraid to make a mistake, but to grow in an ever-creasing desire to love well, to love better, to love you and to neighbor to the best of our ability. God, it's in this that we become more like your son. So pour your spirit out on us. Breathe on us and help us to enliven ourselves into the fullness of who you've called us to be. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.